Hey, this is Chris, and welcome back to Through the Never. This is the final episode of my five-part series covering legendary rock albums. Just as a recap, I read a Loudwire article that listed 25 legendary rock albums that had no weak songs, and we're here today to decide if that list is accurate or if it's just some bullshit. I've split up that list into five groups, and I've had a different guest join me for each group. And today, for the final group, I'm bringing in my friend Mike, who is a longtime friend and also a fantastic drummer. We've done a couple of small things together musically, but mostly we've just been personal friends for, like I don't know, 12 years, I think. We have a lot of mutual taste in music, and I highly value his perspective as an artist and as a music lover, so I've been looking forward to to getting him involved in the show, and I'm excited to get together today. Welcome, Mike, and thank you for helping me look into these albums. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So this whole thing is a subjective analysis. No matter how open-minded we are, we have to decide what makes an album legendary. How do you evaluate that? Well, I think albums sold... Uh, is a big factor and I sales think okay sales and i also think years past um some of the stuff that we've looked at um we can kind of get into but i feel like uh decades probably need to pass and it needs to be an album that people can say hey yeah yeah i know that album and it's and it's important to me or at least it influenced people uh and and from our perspective influenced musicians or you know, they relate it to a specific time in their life. Okay, so lasting impression. That's sure. one of the things. So you think sort of like Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has a uh, certain criteria for it's got to be out for so many years before you get in. You think that to be legendary status, it has to have so much age to it? I would say, yeah, it needs to, it needs to be at least, uh, you know, at least 10 years old. Okay. You know, babies need to be made to these albums. <laughs> for it to be even okay. considered to be legendary. I think one of the albums, yeah, one of the albums that we have on our list today is from 2013. So you think that automatically disqualifies? Mm, we'll get into that. <laughs> Let's see, okay. see how we felt about the album. Okay, we'll get to that one later. So, um, but I, I get what you're saying. Um, some time there to, because a lot of, of these albums, not just for today's group, but through this whole series, I've noticed that when I when I look at information about when it was released and how it was received critically at the time, um, I mean, a lot of them were breakthrough kind of releases, so critics didn't really get excited about it at the time, and it's only over time that it developed its legendary status. So that lends some uh, some you know support to what you're saying there. Yeah, I think people have to have a, t a chance to digest things. Well, and it takes some time before it actually influences another generation. Yeah, so, absolutely. So um, a previous guest, um, Lee, sedated that for him to be legendary, it had to be something he could listen to over and over and over, and it doesn't get old. Yeah. Uh, I found that to be pretty accurate as well. Yeah, I mean, if you take something, and this isn't on our list, but if you take something like Green Day Dookie, for example, um, I can remember being at, you know, I can remember being at the skating rink as a small kid wearing a silk shirt, which I'm, I'm, uh, I'm ashamed to admit, but I remember um, listening. Talk about the 90s here. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I remember listening to that and thinking, ah, cool, well, I hadn't really heard that particular version of, you know, 
uh, a, a, let's say polished punk for lack of a, of, uh, of a better way to describe it. Um, but now it's had enough time to where, you know, when you Some hear, people would say sell out punk, yeah, sell out punk, whatever, you know, <laughs> s- you know, selling out is the goal as, as Jason Newstead has said. And, uh, you know, yeah, sell your albums and make some money and, no, no, I, I, you know, let's not go I, into all that, but, yeah, uh, but, it's a whole other thing. but it's like, uh, now that's, that album is old enough now to where you go, you know, sit around and watch the tube nothing's on you know right. it, it incites some sort of memory in people that are at least our age well, that's or interesting a little bit younger because a later guest mitch said that what makes an album pleasure to him is it connects him to a time in his life that was critical yeah absolutely so you you basically said both so um yeah i mean music has a way of transporting us to a time yeah we we mark we mark times in our lives with, with the music that was, was in our presence at that time. Absolutely. So cool. Um, so yeah, typically I think that's sort of general perspective is that sales, the timing of when it was released, as far as what was going on culturally, um, what creators, I think some things are legendary just because they're connected to a certain person that was known or famous or whatever. And then, you know, did it leave a lasting impression? Was it breaking barriers? Was was it by an artist that was known for that particular release? All those things are kind of related in that way. So what about, you know, part of this list was it having no weak songs. What can make an album a great listen from beginning to end? Um. You know some of them have some bullshit filler songs or, or pointless tracks, but we're talking about consistency here. Well, I think, you know, I'm going to try my best to stay on topic as you know, it was hard for me, but I think, <laughs> um, I think when you're, when you're listening to an album or you're listening to a song, it is so, uh, based on what is going on in your life at that particular time. So, um, if you're going through a heartbreak and the album is talking about that sort of thing, then the whole song can seem strong if that's the subject matter that you're dealing with. Um, and I think especially later on in the industry, when you get into uh, bands getting signed and bands getting managers and bands having producers that say, well, this album worked, the first album sold a lot of copies, so let's try to, let's try to mimic that then uh, the songs can be very similar and seem strong, but it's like, what is the overall theme of the album? Uh, and we can get into that when we get into some of these albums that we that you chose to listen to. But um, I don't know if we're quite there yet. Yeah. So well, I think I think what makes what makes an album song uh, strong is it is it uh, does it touch on a broad subject matter and when you're talking about rock and roll to me it's um you know struggling and um uh sex appeal and kind of all the things that you that you shouldn't do that make it a rock and roll album well what i've noticed is dirty yeah what i've noticed is that you've got some albums will have really like standout hits right and then 
in comparison, some of the other songs on the album are weak. And then you've got some albums that really don't have any hits that really grab you, but they're pretty, it's the, the songs are good and all of the songs might be good. So it's consistently level. So where it's enjoyable to listen to, but nothing really grabs you. So that doesn't get any new listeners in necessarily, but for somebody that's already a fan, it, it serves a good purpose and it's consistent. So the hard thing with evaluating this list is you want it to be legendary, but the, the thing is, is that some of the ones that are legendary are legendary because they had serious hits. But is the whole album good or do the hits overshadow the others so it looks like they got weak songs? So that makes it a little bit murky. Um, but yeah, I see what you're getting to there. And, you know, another thing that can help and this is something that we keep revisiting is that some of these albums, especially the older ones might have a concept. So the whole album is one, one long journey, not just, you know, song by song, but you're looking at a whole broader concept. And in that case, then even if you had a song that might on its own feel kind of weaker, it's only part of that longer story. And so it's sort of accepted as just one stage. So in that case, you almost get kind of more of a pass on mm -hmm. certain pieces. So that kind of makes a difference too. And um, we got sort of a, a wide range of release dates on this one. So usually the older ones have more of the concept. You know, sure. some of the ones we've we've gone through on the series that have been from like from the seventies have more concepts as far as album wide. So, are you a fan of concept albums? I am a fan of concept albums if if the songs were written from kind of an organic uh, place rather than being like forced, you know, I think all the things from let's say, and again, this is before our age, if we're dating ourselves, but like it's before okay. the sixties and, and stuff, um, people were thinking about different things. People were still, still experimenting uh, instrumentally. And so I think a concept album or different musical, uh, uh, launch pads were more available to, to people when they were making music. And I think now in the digital age, now um, a concept album is almost nostalgic in a sense. It's like a cool thing to do or like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to do that in uh, tribute to all the bands that used to do it. And we'll get into that when we get into some of these bands that, that we, okay. that we picked, but all right. um I've I, think, I have been paying attention to current releases that are concept albums and really more in the the metal genre. Yeah, it kind of works out. Sure, but in in the rock stuff, you don't get it quite as much. But yeah, I get that some of the uh, some of the stuff later on, maybe eighties and nineties, that were trying to do concepts didn't quite work as well. And I don't know what about the seventies seemed to seemed to work smoother with that. I don't know if it was a social time period or if it was uh, because it was more of a, a vinyl era where people didn't really want to skip tracks. They just kind of wanted to put it on and let it go. Um, I, I don't know if that's a sort of a social conscious change that's happened or if um, it was more media based. I, I, I don't know, but I've seen it departure from that, but, recently sort of more, I guess it's always been kind of present in metal 
So that's a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, I think if you, and, and again, stop me if I'm not supposed to throw any stuff out, but I think if you take something like uh, Marillion, like Script for Jester's Tears or Fugazi, <clears throat> or like some of the early Dream Theater stuff, um, uh, you know, Images and Words or something like that, um, even then, even in the, you know, let's say early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, people still had the attention span to um and i and i would venture to say that it was mainly musicians that were buying this stuff to sit down and listen to an album and give it their full attention and i think now we're in more of a single age and i i think that really music fans are the ones who are going to go and seek out something like a concept album yeah no you totally good point there and when i was in school we talked about this that in the 50s it was a singles market and then we got to sort of in the 70s, it was more of an album focus kind of thing. And, and part of that is the medium. It went from having 45s to having the full LPs. And so you put an album on and because it was vinyl, it was it was something you didn't want to disturb. You put it on and you let the whole thing play. You enjoy the whole thing at once. And also there wasn't that many options for entertainment at the time. So it's like you put it on an album and that was the focus. You, you soaked it up. That was what you did. And now there's it's like, well, if you get bored a minute into a song, you're pulling out your phone and you're, you're, you're swiping. Something. Yeah. So, um, nowadays there's a lot more challenges for that. So it's all about the singles. We've gotten back to a singles market and that was predicted when I was in college. Like, Hey, we're going to get back to a singles market People are going to iTunes and cherry picking songs. They're not having to buy the whole album to get the stuff, you know? And, uh, I mean, I grew up in an era where you bought the CD and you listened to the whole CD, but if you had a song that was kind of lame, you could skip the song if you wanted to, but for the most part, you let it play. Um, but you weren't confined to that. You had the option to skip and it wasn't a big deal. You know, when I was a kid, when I was really young, it was, it was cassettes, so you would have to fast forward. So that was kind of a hassle. So you just kind of let it play usually. But now it's like you just you make a playlist, so you just totally omit the songs you don't even want to give a chance. And I, I think uh, we miss out on a lot when we don't give the album a full listen. But I think artists are adapting to that, and I fully support the. Uh, this transition to an EP release kind of standard because I would honestly rather as a consumer of music, I would rather get a five to six song EP every 12 to 18 months rather than wait three years for 14 songs. Yeah. And that's just not the way music is made anymore. I mean, used yeah. to music was made, um, you know, we want to unpack that to, to a large extent, but I mean, the industry and the money that you had to, to have to make music was a whole different, um, industry than it is now. And so now people can make those things in their basement or in, in a digital studio and they can release it every six to eight months Right. Well, rather not... than it, you know, you need to go to RCA or, you know, uh, you know, just pick one, one of any yeah. of those huge record labels. We're talking about spending a bunch of money and booking a big studio. Yeah. And also, you know, it's a, it's a double edged sword because it's like you, 
yes, the microscope is uh, honed in a lot more now to where, you, you know, there's a lot more things to pick from. But I think it's, uh, you know, you get as much bad as you do good. And, and the beauty of it is now you, you really can seek out whatever it is that is coming down at the time that you can relate to. Rather than it being like, well, these are the options you have, and either you like this album or that album. Like you said, you know, getting back to, uh, um, you know, going to the music store, I feel fortunate to have been on the tail end of that to where when I heard an album that I liked, I had to go seek it out and I had to buy it. I had to save my money and I had to buy it. And now it's a playlist world. I remember being able to go to the store and putting on headphones and getting to sample it before you bought it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that, to... that was, it's a crazy idea. And yeah. nowadays you can go to Apple and, and you can listen to a clip, you know, before you buy. It. But yeah, I mean, um, it's definitely a, a different situation. As an artist, you can, without spending as much money, put out a single and it's not a big deal. And so you don't have to, like, oh, well, we're going to have to spend a bunch of money on, on, securing this studio and getting a producer and these studio musicians or whatever. And so you want to have a whole album worth of material already packaged and ready to go. So you get in there and you just knock it out, right. To save some money. Now you can just like, Hey, a couple songs, you demo it, you, you, you get it done at the house and it's fine. At the same time, because it's easier to do independently, it's harder to be seen. Now you get the fight for, getting people's attention instead because there's so much more competition so sure. to speak. So it's, it's great because so many more people have the option, but then again, because of that, you've got to really fight to be original and to get attention. So anyway, that's a whole other, yeah, I, I, that's a whole other place to go. I think everybody's screaming into the void at this point, And we're so used to everybody screaming all the time that no one listens at this point. So it's, it's really up to the individual to pick what they want to, what yeah. they want to say. It's hard to get, it's harder to get noticed now, but it's easier to put it out there. So there's no substitute for hard work. Yeah. So let's get into the five that were listed as legendary albums with no weak songs and see how we felt about these particular five. The first one up is guns and roses debut album appetite for destruction. It was released in 1987. It sold 30 million albums worldwide and is listed as one of the best selling albums ever. And no doubt if you would have said, Hey, uh, write down 10 albums that were probably you would guess to be on this list. This is probably one that I would have written down. Yeah. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, first as a drummer, let me say Steven Adler, great, great player, uh, great drummer. Um, typical example of, uh, groove and keeping great four four time. Um, this album, I, was one of the first cassettes that I that I went and bought, um, and I remember being a little kid and buying this cassette, and you know going on trips, road trips, and having this on a Walkman and listening to this album, and uh, you know, I, I probably was a little too young to own this album at the time. Yeah, I remember letting my friends hear it, and they were, I, mean, I was a little, little itty bitty kid, but uh, great 
great, great rock album. I mean, we come from an age where, as kids, we would run around the house singing Welcome to the Jungle or even like Dr. Feelgood. Yeah. Not paying attention or not understanding what it was about. Yeah. Just because it was catchy as hell and fun to sing along to. Yeah, Rocket Queen. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, great album. Um, You know, don't get me started down the Guns N' Roses road, but uh, um, all those guys that were on that album, when you wanted an example of just uh, dirty, um, raw, uh, you know, I was doing some YouTube adventures recently and just going down the rabbit hole and they were talking about the you know kind of the first tour that they went on and how they ended up hitchhiking to finish the tour because the car broke down um basically at the start of that tour and then when you jump to something like watching uh you know uh what is it like live at the tokyo dome or something i forget exactly what it is um where they ended up and like seeing Duff burn out and and just all the things that rock and roll will put you through. There's not really a better example of um, I mean, great songwriting, where that can take you, and the things that that particular world can do to you. Then I mean, it's it's part probably our age bracket too. But when you think about the definition of rock star, this is like one of those bands. That comes to mind, you know, has, has yeah. been been through the shit, but then also has had the success, and that has uh, just gone on to influence generations. And I mean, I have my, I've had my issues with Axl Rose, you know, through the years. Although now he's in a much better place, and I have uh, he's he's regained respect as far as I'm concerned. But have you ever seen them live? I've never seen them live. No, and and uh, and uh, well, again, being a big uh, Stephen Adler and Matt Sorum fan, um, and, I, and their new drummer is incredible, great, really, really good. But um, you know, growing up with uh, uh, the Illusions albums and stuff like that, and listening to all that stuff. Um, uh, you know, I, I haven't seen them live. It would need to be really close to the original lineup for me to dig it. Well, I saw them live last year twice. Yeah. It's <laughs> the only times I've seen them live, and it just happened to be at two different festivals. I went to Louder Than Life, and I went to Exit 111, both of which I've reviewed in previous episodes. And um, they were like two weeks apart, so I saw them twice. And then, you know, within two weeks... Um, and both shows were pretty similar. They they did mix up a couple of songs, but mm. they played two and a half to three hours both times, and it was incredible. And I'll have to say, um, they brought it. I mean, as far as you, they lived up to their reputation and their legendary status live. Yeah, uh, even vocally, you know. Y- the way that Axel sings, you don't expect somebody, uh, I'm not sure how old he is, but I'm going to guess like late fifties for him to be able to pull that off. But he, he did, he did a pretty good job being, being, uh, as long as he's been at it, you know? 
um, good production. You know, both times they were a little late hitting the stage as per their reputation. Tradition. Yeah. Um, the first time was like 40 minutes. Holy but, cow. Um, at the same time, you just kind of laugh while you're waiting. You're like, well, it's guns of roses. What do you expect? You know, but, um, I have not seen a larger crowd at louder than life than for their performance. It was insane. Um, the closest we've had to that would have been Godsmack maybe, or, uh, I don't know, maybe Avenged Sevenfold. I mean, th- those both had big crowds, but Guns N' Roses, oh my God, it was insane. And of course they broke records. It was the, last year's Louder Than Life was the largest festival in America all year. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, well, that's success as far as, you know, you're away for 20 plus years and then you come out and you kind of the same thing the police did. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So are you aware of the production? Uh, This was produced by Mike Klink. Does that name mean anything to you? I know that some of the tracks were done at at uh, Rumbo Studios, and uh, and one of my other favorite bands, which we'll talk about a little later, had recorded there as well. Uh, I think I think there was like three different studios that were used on that. Yeah, that it album. was done in different places, but it was produced by Mike Klink. Mike Klink is known for working with Motley Crue. He did Megadeth's Rust in Peace. He worked with Whitesnake, and he was actually chosen by Metallica, who had the same producer for the first three albums. He was chosen by Metallica to do Injustice for All, right? He was brought in, and they did not get a very good start. Hmm. He ended up getting dismissed, and they brought in their uh, Fleming Rasmussen, the, uh, the, yeah. the original Metallica producer. They brought him in at the end. But on, on paper, this other guy got the... Uh, credits for production instead of Mike Klink but by all accounts uh, listening to interviews and stuff Metallica pretty much produced themselves on that album they knew what they wanted and they got what they wanted yeah which, for the record my favorite Metallica album yeah at well and for the record for most people the worst one of the worst produced albums as far as th- yeah. the mixing goes but again that was a band problem and and that's a, a whole thing to unpack uh, yeah, we won't, we won't get into all that, but um, it's interesting that this, the same producer has been involved in all. And one of the reasons uh, Metallica picked them was because of the sound they had on the on the Appetite for Destruction album. Hmm. So I just wanted to connect that because it is well produced. It sounds good for oh, 1987. Yeah. You know. Oh yeah. So uh, again, I can't imagine a list of legendary albums without appetite for destruction. And every song was solid on this one. And I feel like it held up pretty well after all the years. It's a solid resource for any rock artist and an influence to pretty much all of them. I mean, did you feel like it was pretty solid throughout? Yeah. No argument on that album. It's definitely legendary. Yeah. Um, I, I, there was a couple that I didn't know by name, but when I listened to them, I was like, well, hell yeah, it, it fits. I think it can be summed up as far as if you're talking about rock and roll, um, you know, on, on track four, Out to Get Me. Um, there's not really anything more rock and roll than at the end of that track where um, Axel says, you can suck me. That's pretty much uh, 
That's pretty much the, to the attitude point. of yeah. Guns N' Roses. Yeah. Um, I read there was a lot of different uh, places that the content for that album came from, and a lot of the songs were actually brought in as solo rights by different members of the band mm-hmm. that were then adapted to the band. But Out to Get Me was one, uh, I believe, Axel's issues with run-ins with the police and stuff growing up in Indiana or wherever. Mm-hmm. So does that sound right to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So um, by the way, Out to Get Me um, was covered by Hailstorm in one of their cover EPs and was done really well. Just throwing that out there. All right, let's move on because I think that one, uh, we both agree, deserves to be on this list. So the next one we're going to talk about is King Crimson mm-hmm. in the Court of the Crimson King. This was one that I was not familiar with. I'd heard the name King Crimson, but I had no uh, no knowledge of what it was. So it turns out the day de- this is the debut album. It was released in 1969. It sold about 500,000 copies in the U.S., which certifies it gold. It's an English progressive rock band, we'll say. Yeah. How did you feel about this one? Yeah, I mean, it's a great album. I know it's in... in Were you familiar with it already? Yeah, I was familiar with it. Um, The first King Crimson album that I ever heard was Red, um, which we don't need to go into, but um, I remember hearing it as, like, pretty young um, and and working with a a bass player that was a bit older than me and and being like, what is this stuff? Um, But, um, yeah, as far as the one that's... that's, uh, on the agenda here i was familiar with it i hadn't heard heard it in a while um i know a lot of bands that i listened to that i got into um later have been influenced by these guys um it makes sense knowing knowing the artists you've worked with yeah and uh <laughs> you know i was fortunate to see those guys i think it was on like the power to believe tour or something like that my dad actually took me to see them um and yeah, I remember it being incredible. Um, really hard to understand because I was pretty young, but it was in this theater um, with big plush red velvet seats and gargoyles up on the ceiling and stuff like that. And Where was uh, this? Huh? Where was this? It was somewhere in North Carolina. I don't really re- remember where. It might have been Greenville or something like that uh, or uh, Greensboro, or it's like a some kind of opera house or something. Yeah, it was a really nice, like a like a uh, a theater for plays and stuff. Yeah, it was a, it was a fine theater where you would go see a play. Sometimes or, some of the best sounds because yeah. they're designed to be acoustically. You know, I was probably like, I, I wasn't old enough to drink. Let's say that, but I somehow managed to get a, a hold of a um, a couple margaritas and and sit there and kind of take it in and. I remember it being one of the first times that I had seen a band that really um, uh, got the juices flowing in my mind. It, it took a couple days to process what I had heard um, after that. And yeah, I mean, those guys are, are incredible and have influenced a lot of people. Uh, but this album in particular is a little bit less intense you know there's still some songwriting there's still some vocals on it um i I really like epitaph um it's a it's a a pretty deep tune lyrically 
um, the notes I made was, uh, you know, I talked to the wind. Uh, there's, there's some great brushwork on that. Um, and, and this, you know, something that is, is, is what I'm paying attention to as a drummer, you know, uh, listening to all that kind of stuff. But all the tracks on this album are listenable and no doubt that it is legendary as far as all the progressive rock bands that it has influenced. Yeah. I mean, there's only five tracks on the proper album, but some of them are pretty long. They're pretty Mm -hmm. epic pieces. Um, So my, my first, and I had no, I had no knowledge of this band. I'd heard the name, but I went into it pretty, pretty blind. And I felt like, uh, the note that I made was it feels appropriate to be connected with art rock label and contemporary with bands like the doors. And part of that was because it had sax and flutes and other stuff going on. Um, and I actually wrote down it during my first lesson. I wrote this note, assuming there are major early influence in prog rock British question mark. <laughs> yeah. So turns out that's all true. There's it's a, it's a British band. Um, obviously a, a pioneer in progressive rock. Um, to me, uh, it had a lot of complex arrangements, which comes with progressive music. And it was interesting to listen to for sure. Yeah. But to me, it felt like I was listening to a soundtrack, like it was fulfilling musically, but did not grab my attention in a particular place. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. So for me, I have to be kind of in the right frame of mind to listen to it and I had to kind of revisit it to really appreciate it as much. Um, I found it to be really interesting and I'm sure that it was a legendary as far as an influence, but I, I did not, I did not find it like a great listen all the way through. Like I I struggled with this one a little bit. Yeah. I think again, you gotta, you gotta put it in context of the time and how albums were listened to. And that you saved up to, to buy a, you know, we say albums, but again, you and I are 80s babies. And, um, you know, before that, it was an album and yeah. you, and it was a big deal to get your hands on that. Well, in 1969, there wasn't a lot of this stuff out. So yeah. it was different. Yeah. And you put it on a turntable and you sat there and listened to it. And I think, um, you know, knowing kind of the history of that and all the bands that that came after it um i definitely can see how there's no question in my mind that it's legendary you can go in any you know every once in a while walk in a coffee shop somewhere in the country and they'll have the album cover up and they don't plan 21 yeah schizoid schizoid man yeah schizoid man schizoid man and it's like they don't even know what the album is but that album cover if nothing else and that's another subject we we yeah. probably shouldn't uh, unpack but like just album covers in general that album cover is looks pretty yeah. psychedelic almost absolutely yeah and it, it fits fitting with you talking about that's that's the year of the original woodstock i mean that's yeah that's the time period for for that kind of stuff um and you are probably more into the progressive rock stuff than me so this is probably more your territory than mine. But uh, I don't know. This feels a little bit of an odd one for me for the list. So we may not agree on that one. 
Uh, no, I, I, I agree with the legendary status, but I can understand how it's hard to sit through. But I can I can look at like let's say being a Dream Theater fan fan or being a porcupine tree fan and knowing that those guys were very heavily influenced by bands like uh, King Crimson and Genesis and how they um, Genesis that one didn't make the list but I would have yeah, enjoyed I mean, listening to some Genesis it's endless I can see where it all came from and you can even you could even relate like a Jethro Tull or something like that to the same time period of this particular album well so. i connected it to the doors does that seem weird to you yeah i mean it's a little that's it's let's well it's just the it. art rock kind of thing <laughs> yeah i mean i can see the generalization there but it you know yeah okay all right well we'll move on the next whoa, whoa. Oh. party foul party foul knocked over a beer bottle what do we uh how do you pronounce this so while we've been uh, working on this stuff, we've been uh, enjoying some craft beers, some uh, seasonal pumpkin style uh, Elysian, you know, mix box. So now uh, what do we open here? Elysian pumpkin stout, dark of the moon pumpkin stout. It's pretty good. I, I like it. It's good. It's good. All right, so the next album is another UK band, Led Zeppelin. This is Led Zeppelin number four. Da, 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 da. And I'll have to say, if you, you don't know who Led Zeppelin is, just go ahead and, and uh, shut this off and go somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to understand anything that we talk about if you, the name Led Zeppelin doesn't mean anything to you. So Led Zeppelin infamously named their albums... Uh, just by numbers. And in fact, number four, I don't think it's officially titled. I think we just call it four. Is that right? I believe so. Yeah. So it, I, I believe the album cover just has a picture and in one version or in the inner part, it just has like four symbols, but it's not actually numbered, but we all call it Led Zeppelin four. It was released in 1971. It's one of the most influential and best-selling bands and of all time. Uh, sorry. Best-selling albums of all time, also probably one of the most best-selling bands of all time. Two hundred to three hundred million units of this album have sold. That's insane. It's uh, no, no, no. I'm sorry, I was correct when I said bands. I have my notes backwards here. One of the most influential and best-selling bands of all time. Two hundred to three hundred million units for Led Zeppelin, and in, you know, as a whole, their this number four is their best-selling album with about 37 million worldwide for this particular album. There we go. Make sure I get my, my numbers correct there. Yes. So, you know it's a legendary album when you don't remember listening to it completely, but you still recognize all of the song titles from references and discussions by guitarists and musicians in your life. So that's where, I'm, that's where I was at when I started this one. So Led Zeppelin has always been one of those bands that as a guitarist, I've... I've said, you know, I get it. Jimmy Page is an influence on everybody. And Led Zeppelin has some great songs. And they are, you know, legends in rock. But I never bought one of their albums. And it's never one of those things that I was particularly drawn to. I could say the same thing about the Beatles, about Elvis. Like, I get their place in music history. But I've not appreciated them the same as I felt like a lot of people have. 
more on a personal level. But again, I also never listened to an album start to finish until I did for this episode. So anyway, how do you feel about Led Zeppelin four? And then I'll, then I'll weigh in. Um, no question at all. Legendary album. Um, John Henry Bonham, baby. Uh, there's the drummer talking again. Uh, you know, this is probably the most popular among people as far as the Led Zeppelin albums. I, I remember, uh, okay. So my dad, big bass player, uh, rock fan, deep vinyl collection. I remember finding this album, which was my father's and listening to it over and over and over and over again in our basement on the turntable. Probably. And there's an argument that an album like that, the way it was produced probably sounds better on vinyl. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, we can, that's a whole nother subject. Well, I already had this conversation yeah. in a previous episode. Let's not go all into but that. But I just want to say, listening to it on an album, I, I feel like that you did it the proper way. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember listening to all those things, you know, uh, you know, going to California and rock and roll and all that stuff. Um, and again, not to keep beating the, the drummer thing over the head, but I'm going to do it the entire podcast. It's so okay. You're a drummer. The greatest, the greatest drum intro of all time when the levee breaks. Yeah. Um, so the, no argument here. Legendary. Absolutely legendary. And yeah, this album definitely you put changed my life. You put Bonham in your, your top handful of, of drumming influences? Um, I think anybody who argues if Bonham is one of the greatest rock and roll drummers of all time should be excommunicated. <laughs> I think they should be shot out into space and... Yeah, this is not even up for debate. Okay. If so. you if you had taken if you had taken and the great drummers, there's all sorts of great drummers and great players, but let's say you take Keith Moon from The Who and you put him in Led Zeppelin, it would not have been the same and vice versa. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like Yeah. Keith Moon's not as appreciated currently as he should be. No, he I'll, should I'll, be though. I'll say that. But so, you have a top five? Do you want to give me a top five drummers? Top, top five drummers? Influential drummers? Okay. Um, top five. This will be interesting. Jesus. I think it depends on context. It depends on what you're listening to. No, no, no. For you, personally. For me. Okay. Vinny Kaliuta. Vinny Kaliuta. Um, Go ahead and say who he's with. So everybody. Any, any, <laughs> anything you've heard on the radio. I uh, was with Zappa. Um God, just just look him up. If you don't know who he is, look him up. Vinny Kaliuta. Um Pat Torpy, probably my number one, which is on one of the albums we're gonna talk talk about soon. Pat Torpy. Okay. Um Jerry Gaskell, King's X. Okay. Um talked about them last of last episode of the series. Yeah. Um I'm gonna I'm just gonna give you those those three because to me, it's all about what genre of music you're listening to. Yeah, but I know that. Uh, I mean, Bonham. Bonham is there. Bonham is one Bonham. of the all-time greatest. And then uh, uh, I slipped my mind just now, but the, the Bon Jovi drummer was a big influence for you. Yeah, right? Tico. Tico Torres. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, to me, it's not fair to say, okay... You're talking about the older ones, too. Do you have any 90s drummers? No, I mean, I think... <clears throat> look, if you, it depends on the decade. You can take somebody like Billy Cobham, or you can take somebody like Max Roach, um, or you can take somebody like... Don't get me started, man, because this could be a whole <laughs> other episode. But, I mean, all those guys... Okay, God, I'm not going to say that because I'll get slayed for it, but... There's a lot of drummers that were earlier on that uh, get credit, and I'm not going to say the one. And if you're a drummer, you're going to know probably who the quote greatest drummer of all time was. But in my in my mind, um, I think Gene Krupa was the man. So if you if you relate him to quote the greatest drummer of all time, and and anybody listening to this will know who that is. To me, Krupa Krupa grooved harder. Krupa had okay. better feel. I'm gonna get slayed for that, but whatever. I don't care. I stick. I stick by it. Gene I, Krupa, most baby. drummers that I know would say, I, "Yeah, don't, don't." Wait, we're not let's not. Names? Let's okay. not go there. Okay. Okay. All right. Gene Krupa. Okay. The man. So, um, you get no doubts. This oh album. wait, let me throw one more in. Todd Zuckerman. That guy's a monster. Okay. Sticks. Sticks. That's that's good. Talk about a band that has concept albums. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> he was later on, but he's one of the greatest drummers. Anyway, let's keep going. Don't get me started. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, do you have anything else you want to say about number four here? Uh, were, you, were you were you good with Brazen Bonham? Yeah, all that stuff. Incredible. Legendary, huh? Yeah. I mean, Stairway, obviously. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, with this album, and uh, I'll have to pull up the track list uh, again just to make sure I don't screw something up. Black Dog is my favorite Zeppelin song ever. Mm -hmm. Always been since I was a kid. I just love that guitar riff. Um, love the vocals. And it's it's one of those songs where it just rocks out. that You don't have to wait on it. It's it's pretty straightforward, got a blues influence to it. Just just love it. Um, but you know, going into this album, I was like, I just I just hit play and I was going with it. I was like, I'm gonna probably enjoy this because it's Led Zeppelin, obviously. And I don't really know which songs are on which album. I'm not that big of a Led Zeppelin guy, but I'm like, I'm just gonna just gonna go with it. Their albums are not real long, but they put it out back to back to back. You know. Mm -hmm. It was something that was happening in the seventies a lot. Anyway, so uh, Black Dog, and then you got Rock and Roll, which is uh, a hit. I mean, everybody pretty much knows that, even if not by the song title. Uh, Battle of Evermore is a little different. I believe that's the one that had some mandolin and some other stuff going on. Mm -hmm. um, and you have Stairway. I mean, you can't deny Stairway is. Uh, I mean, it's the song itself is legendary status. It is the the song that they're probably the most known for. It's an epic of a song. And then you have Misty Mountain Hop, When the Levee Breaks. I mean, it's just plenty of other well known songs on this album, but they all they were all good. So I'm gonna say, you know, listening to it. It's obvious to me how much they've influenced generations. 
with the writing style, with the vocals. And particularly for me, I it's so obvious the influence that it's had on one of the what I think is one of the best current rock bands in Alter Bridge. I mean, you listen to this album and you're like, I this is where Alter Bridge gets, you know, the vocals. Dude. And some of the other Let me just say that you turned me on to Alter Bridge and they have become one of my favorites. Those guys are awesome. I love that band. So have you thank listened, you. Have you listened to the newest album? Which is the newest one? Oh, uh, shit, uh, ask me that. I'm gonna, uh, I did a review on it, and now the name of the album. Is... Show us a leader, or was it the last? No, one? no, no. Um, the newest one was "Walk the Sky." It came I've out last some... October, and here's the thing with that one. That one. They decided to use some um, sort of synth kind of tracks in the background, and it it worked out fine. I'm not a big fan of adding extra shit like that in songs, yeah. But it it actually worked fine. They didn't do it in all the songs, but there's mm-hmm. three or four of them that was was kind of there. And I saw them live right after at Exit 111. And what they did was they had um, Mark's guitar tech kind of do some keyboard stuff in the back on the stage. So they did it live and the guy actually performed it live and he did his little parts during the certain parts of the songs and then he kind of disappeared. So it wasn't like an active like thing, but they did come out and recreate it. It wasn't like a track they played with, which I totally respected. They're like, hey, we're going to play that song, so we're going to make it work. We're going to have the guy come out and do it and then he'll leave. You know, and if you're going to do it, that's the way to do it. So total respect for that. I think the album was good. I had a positive review. I did a previous episode about it, but it's probably one of the lower ones in their catalog in my mind. Mm Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I haven't heard the whole album, so I can't weigh in on that. It's good. I just feel like they've sucked set such a high bar that it's really hard for them to impress me now because I already, my expectations are so high when they put something out. Do you know what I mean? Well, I think any band that has a long career, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be what you like about that band at the time. And I think shit Metallica is a perfect example of that. Metallica is a great they, example. They put out four albums that will blow your mind. And then they put out the most commercial album in the history of, of rock and metal. And then after that, they can't produce anything that makes anybody happy unless you're just a really true fan. Yeah, but you got to gauge it against where you're at in life at the time and why you relate to that album. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's like, It's all relevant. Again, I always use something like, uh, like Rage Against the Machine. You know, oh, fuck man. you, I won't do what you tell me. Yeah. When I was a teenager... That was relevant to how I felt at the time, that's, but now that's always relevant. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah, but now it's like fuck you. I won't do what you tell me. It's like well, I might depending on how much it pays. You know what I mean? Like I don't. It's that's great. You know your integrity. You know, like I have pretty good integrity, but uh, but you. But you, at the same time, let's. What kind of money are we talking? <laughs> you know, there's limits. Yeah, yeah. Everything is negotiable. Yeah. No, that's. That. 
<laughs> Sorry. That's funny. Sorry, Zach. That's great. Uh, talking about one of the disappointments of 2020 being canceled is their freaking reunion tour. Yeah. You know, another great drummer. Yeah. Brad, Brad Wilk. Wilk. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Well, okay. So Led Zeppelin is awesome. No, uh, no surprises there. No arguments. Okay. So moving on. Queens of the Stone Age, Like Clockwork. This was their sixth album. Came out in 2013. One of the newest ones on this list. This was self-produced, which is always interesting to note. It sold about 91,000 copies right away. It hit number one on the Billboard chart and was nominated for three Grammys. I cannot find more recent sales numbers, but it did really well and it did really well immediately. And like I said, number one on billboard and nominated for three Grammys. Uh, it inc- included contributions by Dave Grohl, who came in and finished the drum parts after the drummer uh, was gone. I'm not sure exactly the story on that. If he was let go or if he decided to leave, but Dave Grohl did almost half the drums on the album. Also, uh, Trent Reznor, uh, they were actually grooming, or not grooming, but let's just say they were working with him on contributing to a track, and they actually wanted him to produce it, but I don't think that actually happened. Mm-hmm. So Trent Reznor contributed some vocals, at least to one track. He was involved a really? little bit. And then also, um, Elton John put some piano on one of the tracks. No kidding. I didn't yeah. know that. So how did you... F- feel about this one i liked it uh you know you know i'm not as familiar with those guys as i should be um i love is it is it josh comey how do you say it's josh home josh okay i love that dude's voice um there's a lot of falsetto yeah and you can pick it out and what i you know a couple things that i really notice about those guys is they end a song uh originally when they feel like ending it it's not just your classic uh you know like golden system of like how things should be their arrangements are really unique um and you know it's them when you hear them um they do have a signature sound i'll give you that uh, i guess you know i i probably heard the first thing that everybody you know that any layman heard was uh what we've got some rules to follow this and that, these and those. The go with the flow is probably yeah. the the first one. That and I, I think Grohl was on that one. That's Songs for the Deaf. Yeah. So that was the out. Al- actually, I own that album, so I don't remember if somebody gave it to me or I traded or if I went out and actually bought it. Uh-huh. But I have that album now. I did see them live, and it may have been about that time period. I saw them on a Halloween night show, opening for Nine Inch Nails. Oh wow! And uh, I would say everything positive about that show except for Nine Inch Nails turned that into a big political statement which pissed me off because mm-hmm. I hate it when bands surprise you with a big political statement mm-hmm. in their show regardless of if I agree with them or not. Yeah. I don't I'm not paying my ticket to for go that. for that. Yeah. So that annoyed me. But Queens of the Stone Age was the opener for that show and I was like, oh, "I've heard a song that you know, it's cool. I was going for Nine Inch Nails and for just to go to a Halloween event and uh, Queens of the Stone Age put on a hell of a show. I was, you know, it was interesting to see, but 
Uh, Songs of the Deaf. I had that album. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, I. It sold they're, really well. So they're, they're like they're like the real deal, man. Like I I would go see them. I haven't seen them live, but I would go see them. I would be stoked about going to see them. You know, playing real music, playing live music. Um, from everything that I've seen, that I've heard, I like it's it's original sounding. Um, the stuff that I liked on it was uh, let me see. Uh, I liked um, if I had a tail. I liked smooth sailing. That's kind of creepy. Um, and that this album, I guess, there's kind of. A, I think those a, were both singles. Yeah, there's kind of a vampiric attitude to the whole thing, which is interesting. I think their their sound is a bit stalking. It's always kind of got that kind of creepy vibe to it. Yeah. Yeah, and if you if you watch the, uh, I guess it's smooth sailing video. Um, I think he's like in Japan. He's He's just hanging out with a, what looks like a bunch of businessmen, and it's everything that is the late night adventures that you can get into if you're willing to go down the the dark alleyway. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I thumbs up for these guys. Legendary, you know the the two. Yeah, I feel like the album was strong all the way through. Uh, the mixing was good. It's definitely got a sound. Um, legendary, I think it's too soon for me to say legendary. Um, but I'm sure there are a lot of people, a lot of kids that have been extremely influenced by this album. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was number one on Billboard. People were into it. Yeah. Shit, sorry. That one was empty. You got lucky. It's, it's good. It's all good. I'm just trying to prop my phone up on this bottle. Okay, so honestly, I don't get the appeal for this album. Personally, I prefer the more punk sounds of the earlier works like Song for the, Songs mm-hmm. for the Deaf. Listening to this entire thing wasn't like a chore, but it failed to keep my interest, honestly. I, I felt like there was one big exception. I really, really enjoyed Smooth Sailing. Mm-hmm. That song, for me, was a jam. It's on my playlist now. Yeah. Like, that song had a groove to it and i i was listening to it and i kind of lost interest and i was kind of in and out with it and that song hit and it pulled me right back in yeah so for for me that was that was the jam from the album i liked fairweather friends too i like that one yeah i mean there's a couple that that were not bad but i feel like there's other albums that they've released including songs of the deaf that would be a better album to choose for this list personally i i'm not going to say not legendary i'm going to say too soon to say legendary i definitely think that as a whole this band has been a great example of guys making music that they want to make that is good that is great music and you know who it is when you hear them um but it's too soon to say legendary on any of the stuff yeah i'm you know, I, I just, I'm a little puzzled why this is the album from them that would make that, that would make that level. Yeah, I feel like they have better releases. I, I, I figured, you know, like songs for the deaf would be more. Yeah. In that, I mean, I. There's a reason I have that album and I don't have the others. Right. <laughs> you know, 
Like, I, I don't know. I felt the same with, you know, the list had a Beatles album, but it didn't have Abbey Road or, or one of the ones you would expect from the Beatles. It had Magical Mystery Tour. What the hell? It depends on your age. It, de- <sighs> it depends on your age and it depends on what connected with you. That's why this is I, so fun. I would almost, like, I, I would really like to have a conversation with whoever selected these albums for that Loudwire article to figure out. <laughs> maybe you should. <laughs> maybe. So, so, but like your favorite Metallica album is what, Master? Hmm. I don't know. I feel like it changes, but a lot of times it's Justice. Yeah. And, and like we said earlier, the production on that is different, but I'm a treble whore. So like, and I like all the, the doubling of the guitars on that stuff. And there's a, there's a whole, there's a whole history of that that we won't go into no, of, but about this, what was played and who played it. I, for, for me, it was a writing style. I, I love the, the complications of that album, but the, even without the low end that it should have had, it is very heavy. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, for a long time, I modeled my guitar sound after that album, and it was an issue playing with a bass player <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because because I was taking up all the low frequencies. So it's a, it's it's selfish. an issue, but it's almost like you you get your guitar sounding that way, and you almost don't. I don't want to say don't need a bass player, but you fill it in, you know. <laughs> so. For me, when I was just jamming with a friend on drums, it felt good. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it is what it is. But for me, this was an odd choice for the list. I didn't feel like it quite met the requirements. Again, where I will leave it is I think those guys have an original sound. I have never heard anything from them that I don't like, but I think that it's too young. To yeah. be legendary. Yeah, I just don't. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know that they're no. going to be a big influence on another, on another generation of artists. And again, maybe time will tell. Maybe, maybe they will. Yeah, it's very likely. I mean, very. Look, I love the vocals. I love the dynamics of the stuff. I love the way it's mixed. Um, it's got a very like, in. I don't want to say industrial. But the Queens of the Stone Age sound like something that, like, when I'm in the city and I look down in the gutter and I see, you know, like, the sludge that's running down the road, like, those guys are like, it's like, yeah, this shit is real. And uh, and I dig it. You know, I like the stuff. So they've got their own thing, and I, I hope they keep making albums because everything I've heard I like. But it's too it's too soon to tell. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, I can I feel that. All right, let's move on to the fifth one on this list. That is the Rolling Stones. I know a, a, <laughs> a favorite of yours. This is Exile on Main Street. Just real quick, tell me, is this does this surprise you that this is the album from Rolling Stones that made the list? <sighs> okay. Oh, hold on. If you're going to go to a big thing, let me finish my okay, stats. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so this is their 10th studio album. It's a double album. It was released in 1972. It sold 1 million or more in the U.S. 
charted at number one in six countries. It's a lot of blues, rock, and swing. Standard Rolling Stones kind of material. Okay, go ahead. 240 million albums worldwide. Talking about the band as a whole. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, I know you're a fan. 66.5 million in the U.S. alone. The greatest rock and roll band of all time, period. You're going hard, okay. Love them or hate them. Album sold. Attitude. Um, okay. I'm going to say okay, it's okay. one of the most me, consistent bands. Because think about this. This is a finish. contemporary of the Beatles. But the Beatles kind of flamed out, right? I love Rolling the Stones. Rolling Stones have not quit. Okay. You know, you know where I'm at on this. They are the greatest rock and roll band of all time, period. Okay, no one. So you would have been pissed that they weren't on this list at all. Are you glad I saved this album for your episode here? I wouldn't. I wouldn't even look at you. I, I, I would again excommunicate you from the planet if you didn't feel that they are the greatest band of all time. Google, okay, while we're on the drummer subject, let's talk about Charlie Watts. Charlie Watts has not wanted to be there for 40 years, but he's still there. And if you ever need a pick-me-up, Google any video of Charlie Watts talking about how he hates the other the other guys. Um, greatest rock and roll band of all time. He does not want Al- to be in the band. Album sold. Um <laughs> For longevity, if nothing else, no one has done it longer, no one has done it bigger, and no one has done it better. Period. Um, that's all I got to say about that. <laughs> I love the Stones. Uh, my wife continually has to talk me out of spending more money than we should to see them front row. <laughs> You know, my dad has said that with the amount of drugs Keith Richards has consumed, that he cannot be com- killed by conventional weapons. Yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> I just, I just, for me, that always made me laugh. Uh, that's a band with a lot of history. Okay, let's let okay let's let's break it down though. Let's since we're talking about the stuff. <laughs> First of all, guys that were all in private school that started listening to American rock and roll or American blues, American blues. I'm surprised these guys have made it this long as a band and even just survived seriously with the lifestyle. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, the lifestyle, but like, okay, let's take something like uh, Sweet Black Angel off of this album. Did I, did I, I said the album name, right? Exile from Main Street? Yeah. Okay. There's no way you're going to put that song out now. It's not going to fly. Oh, there's a lot of craziness um, in their songs, for sure. Uh, I didn't even I didn't even make notes on that, but I I just I love the Stones. My my mother is a huge Stones fan. She's the one who turned me on to the Rolling Stones. I've seen the Stones a lot. Um and if you want to see 
the best example of how uh, a band can continually make music that they want to make um, and the production that can go into a great rock and roll show, go see the Rolling Stones, love them or hate them. They are the biggest, the biggest that there is. They will always sell out every single time. So their logo has the the whole lips with the tongue hanging out. The tongue, yeah. Yeah, so don't you think that's probably the, the most popular band tattoo there is? Yeah, there's a couple. There's uh, there's the tongue, which has been through a lot of different versions. Yeah. There's also the steal your face from the Grateful Dead. That's a the skull okay. that everybody knows. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, <clears throat> look at one point. At one point, uh, we were I was talking about them, and I realized that I was wearing a Rolling Stones shirt, Rolling Stones boxers. And like Rolling Stones socks. And it was, it was, I wasn't even <laughs> aware that I was doing it. So that's marketing in a nutshell of like, but all of that aside, great music, great stuff. I mean, and if you listen to this album in particular, the one we're talking about, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of stuff that there's almost a country influence in this album. Um, you know, and some Bo Diddley influences, not directly rhythmically, but like, you know, shake your hips or, um, you know, when you listen to something like rip, rip the joint, um, you can really hear all the stuff that like Keith Richards was, and, and those guys were influenced by early rock and roll, you know, the Chuck Berry's is well known. He's a huge Chuck Berry fan. But all the early rock and roll stuff that was innocent and, you know, the Jerry Lee Lewis's of the world. And you can hear all that stuff in this album, how they were influenced by that stuff. Hmm. Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and all those guys that they stole from. <laughs> but that's part of music. Yeah. I. I mean, I thought it was an enjoyable album. It was a good listen all the way through. It didn't have any standout tracks. It was just consistent for me. So this is kind of concerning when it's a double album because I would imagine that that makes only people that were already fans really get the real benefit. You know what I mean? Because there wasn't anything that really stood out and grabbed me. It was sort of like, it was just good all the way through. And I kind of mentioned that earlier in the podcast so like sometimes you have an album that's legendary because it has stairway to heaven on it but then you've got some albums that are legendary not because they had a a mega hit but just because you could just listen to it straight through and just have a good time the whole way and for me the rolling stones are consistent about having a good time but i didn't have any that were just like oh i need to go back and listen to that one song again I didn't have any mm-hmm. of those. And when you have a double album, you would think at some point you would have one of those tracks that would really get your attention. But for me, it was just pretty solid, but just good all the way through. Now that again, that's coming from somebody that's not a Stones fan per se. 
Well, I think there were two tracks on that album that were pretty well known, which is Tumbling Dice. Yeah, Tumbling Dice and, was known. And Sweet Virginia. Yeah. That one was pretty well known, and that's kind of like they're, they're sticking their, their toe into a little bit of a country country slang, country stuff. Um, but both those, uh, I, I mean, like, you know. Dude, there was, there, dude this is a whole other episode, so let's yeah, not yeah. go off on a Okay, tangent, well, but. Mick Jagger did an, an interview in 2003 where they asked him about some stuff, and he was talking about Exile, this, mm-hmm. this album. And he was basically saying that he wasn't quite sure he got the appeal because there wasn't any hits on the album, and he wasn't happy with the mixing and all that. And he was basically saying that if he could go back and remix one of the albums, that would be the one. And he's like, I don't get the fan appeal of that album. He didn't hate the songs, but he just didn't feel like it was one of their strongest. And it's it's interesting that, I mean, if I was in charge of a record label and somebody wanted to come up and say, hey, I want to do a double album, I would shut that shit down immediately. That's not something you really want to do nowadays. Again, it's all about the singles. The shorter the release and the more frequent the release, the more attention you're going to get on those songs. So to put out a double album, now again, this is, what was it, 1972? Yeah. Again, it's a little different in 1972. You could put out a double album and you'd probably be okay. But for yeah, me but- to listen to 18 or whatever songs and to not really have one that really was like, hey, I'm going to go back, that one was really kicking ass. Yeah, but again, you and I are too young to even, again, there was no internet. There yeah. was no... Well, but we're evaluating the songs now, so we still yeah, have yeah, to Yeah, yeah, it, it still stands the test of time. But yeah. again, as a Stones fan, do you how <sighs> would you rate this in the releases by the Stones? Yeah. Because Mick Jagger does not put it near the top at all. So why was this one chosen for the list? Then as a Stones fan, how would you Well, I think that? I think that there's 18 songs on the album, so there's something that somebody's going to like. So it's very likely that you that you can pick something of all those tunes that you like. That's all, that was a lot of good stuff. I mean, I enjoyed yeah. it. I'm, I'm not trying to... Yeah, I mean... Discount it. I'm just saying that there wasn't... It was pretty evenly just, you know, good overall, which a lot of bands can't, can't manage to do. So that's still a good statement. But... If you were going to listen to a Stones album, is this the one you would put on? I mean, I listen to any Stones album. I don't really care. I, I think they're all good. They're, even the shitty stuff is good. So, even, do, you, do you think they're newest? Th- this should be on the list, yes. This should, this be on should the list? absolutely be on the list. Okay. Is there a, you don't think there's a different Stones album that should have preceded this one? I think this is the one of the most well-known albums, and I mean, like you could listen to Goat's Head Soup or something like that, or uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, dude. I mean, they've been making music for I so know. long. I know they have so many albums; it's a little hard to even like. Beggar's s- Banquet. Sort through. Yeah, uh, it's a lot of stuff in the '80s. Yeah, they had a lot of. This is a whole nother episode that we need to just, if you <laughs> yeah. want to do a Stones episode, I'm 
totally down. But I don't know enough the, to do with Holstone's episode. I'm I have gonna, to do a lot of research on I'm that. I'm going to leave it at the greatest rock and roll band of all time for um, content, albums sold, and longevity. And yeah, anybody yeah. who wants to argue with that. <laughs> It sold one million in the U.S., so it, it it definitely. I mean, it's platinum, so it definitely did well. Um, for me, I think the band is legendary. If this is the album that is the best representation of them, then I get it. Uh, it was solid to listen to all the way through. So technically, it meets the criteria. Um, I'm not going to run out and tell anybody to go listen to Exile from Main Street, but. Exile on Main Street. Make sure I say that correctly. Um, but it was a solid album. And I think the Stones have earned their rightful place in music history and as an influence on so many. Yeah. Greatest rock and roll band of all time. <laughs> I like how you Love them or hate them. Keep repeating it. Okay. Sticky Fingers. Cool. Pick pick an album. There's, all, there's good stuff on all the albums. So... That is the end of the five that were on our list. However, I've also asked every guest to bring in their selection for an album that should have been on this list that meets the criteria, you know, in their mind. So go ahead and tell us what you think should be on that list. I'm going with Mr. Big lean into it. All right. I think that that's a solid album all the way through. So that is their second album and their breakthrough album from 1991. It sold at least 1.2 million in the U.S. Why did you choose that one? Well, I love Mr. Big. Um, I am a huge Pat Torpy fan. Uh, every member of that band is incredible. Uh, Eric Martin, uh, Pat Torpy, Billy Sheehan, Paul Gilbert, and then later on, Richie Kotzen. Um, all of those guys are incredible players on their own. They've been in numerous different projects, numerous different bands. They're all uh, masters of what they do. And uh, this is an album that uh, I've listened to for many, many, many years. Um, I went and got it on cassette uh, at the record store. Um, you can always hear something new. Uh, there's always some sort of percussive thing that you, you didn't catch. The production is great. Um, the playing is incredible. The songwriting is great. And uh, it's just a great, great rock and roll al album. So, And so are all the other albums um they had a huge hit with to be with you on this which was the ballad um but the other everybody knows that yeah, song everybody knows that song the other 10 tracks are rockers to be with you is a great ballad um and there was two or three ballads on that album oh yeah just take my heart yeah that's a good one um so yeah that's my pick yeah i knew the name mr big and i I've heard a couple of singles over the years, but really wasn't too familiar with the overall sound. I also am familiar with Paul Gilbert as the guitarist from Racer X and did not remember he was a part of Mr. Big. Mm -hmm. So when I figured that out, 
it really got my attention. The singer has a bit of a Sammy Hagar sound, which I enjoy. Would you agree? I, I think he sounds like Eric Martin, but yeah, okay. I, I can see where you're coming from. But I mean, not quite the Sammy Hagar signature kind of vocal, but it, <laughs> he he did some things that kind of had yeah, that yeah, feel yeah. to me. And I love Sammy Hagar's vocals. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, once, once I made that connection, it really kind of got my attention. Um, damn good bass guitar on that too. Billy Sheenan, I mean, earns his place for sure. Um, I always knew that you were a big fan. You've talked about Mr. Big before. After listening to this album, I get it. It's a really good writing. The guitar is timeless. The funky beats, the fun vocals. Uh, you definitely have a good argument that this being an album, it should be considered legendary. Um, it's not one that I'd listened to before. So, um, I was familiar with the singles and mm-hmm. uh, to be with you, obviously everybody probably knows that one, but I did not realize how rocking the rest of the album was. So it's definitely something I'm going to revisit and listen to a few times. And then, I mean, I'm probably going to listen to some other stuff by Mr. Big, just, um, yeah. just to be well-rounded and yeah, be man. familiar with more of it. Yeah, you should. First album, Bump Ahead, um, you know, Hey Man, uh, later on, uh, Get Over It. I mean, all their stuff. It's well, and, it's and well written. And some of those guys, did you say, I know Billy Sheenan is part of the Winery Dogs? Yeah, he's in the Winery Dogs with uh, with with uh, Richie Kotzen and Mike Portnoy. Um Great, another great rock band. Anything, anything that any of those guys from Mr. Big are in is going to be an awesome example. Paul of... Gilbert's kind of doing a solo thing now, but he did resurrect Racer X for a bit. Um, but I think Mr. Big actually had a reunion tour or so a few years ago, right? They did have a reunion tour. Uh, Pat Torpy uh, actually passed away a couple of years ago. That's the bass. This is the drummer, drummer, sorry. the drummer, um, and he was with he had played with a bunch of different people again, but you know, great, 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 great drummer. And for me, you know, it really just the thing about this album and that band in general is they're they're all great players, but they know how to write a great song, and uh, that definitely had an influence on me. And I was fortunate to see those guys um, right before Pat Tor- uh, Pat Torby passed away. Um, my wife bought me some tickets and I was stoked to see those guys. And, and, and Matt Starr was subbing in as well, uh, on drums, but Mike, Mike Starr from Alice in Chains and stuff. No, Matt, Matt. Okay. Um, and, uh, no, no, Mike Starr was the bass yeah, player. He's a drummer. Sorry. Uh, so, yeah. sorry. Get, get that mixed up. And so like, <sighs> definitely, man, for me, like probably my favorite band of all time, if like top two, them and King's X. I would say. Mr. And Big and King's X. Those are some yeah. good bands to, to be influenced by for sure. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I recommend them. And if, if you guys don't know who they are, or you haven't checked out any of the albums, all the albums are good. You can go down a rabbit hole of any of the stuff that any of those guys in that band have played on. And it's all going to be good. And it's all going to be musical and it's all going to be well-written and, um, heartfelt. So, yeah, lean into it, Mr. Big. 
highly recommend it. Awesome. All right. Yeah, I, I'm going to agree with you. That's one that uh, should be on the list for sure. So just a, a quick recap um, of these 25 albums that we've gone over through this entire series. Um, Jimi Hendrix, Are You Experienced, The Doors, The Doors, Beatles, Magic Mystery Tour, David Bowie, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust, uh, Radiohead, OK Computer, and then Lee also added Bon Jovi, Slippery When Wet. We had ACDC, Highway to Hell, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, Deep Purple and Rock, Van Halen's debut, Van Halen, Rush, Permanent Waves, and then my dad, who was a guest, uh, brought in Boston's debut, Boston. Um, then we had Rage Against the Machine's debut, Rage Against the Machine, Rainbow, Rising, Fleetwood Mac Rumors, Weezer's The Blue Album, The Who, Who's Next, and our guest Mitch brought in Bush 16 Stone. And then we had Alice in Chains' Dirt, Nirvana, Nevermind, Pearl Jam 10, Soundgarden, Super Unknown, Deftones, White Pony, and then Dustin brought in King's X, Dogman. Yeah. And, then, and then this episode, we had Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction, Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street, Led Zeppelin 4, King Crimson in the Court of the Crimson King, Queens of the Stone Age, Light Clockwork, and then Mike added Mr. Big. Lean into it. Lean into it. So that's a total of 30 albums that uh, I've been listening to lately. <laughs> and it's been quite the journey. And I'm going to say... And listening to the albums in this whole series, I'm reminded that evaluating these pieces, it's strongly dependent on your experience while listening. And I'm reminded that the experience is strongly affected by your frame of mind. And sometimes you want to hear Black Dog and get right into rocking. And sometimes you want to soak up the journey of something like Stairway to Heaven. And that I've had to listen to some of these albums a second time when I was in a different frame of mind, you know, different mental state to make every effort to understand why they were listed. And, and it has really made a big difference. So I've enjoyed all these albums and it's been a fun experience to do this series. And I, I, I appreciate all the guests that have helped me with this. So uh, a big thanks to Lee, Mitch, my dad, Dustin, and Mike as well. So Mike, while I've got you here, what are you working on right now musically? Um, what have we got to look forward to hearing that, that you've been doing? Okay. Uh, I will be uh, in Sterling, Kentucky on October 16th with Chris Linton. Uh, and that's, sort of a country kind of a country thing country at the thing. outlaw homecoming. Yeah. Um, I'm super, super, super excited, uh, probably in the new year to release the new Marin Chaplin single, which is called take your medicine. Uh, it's currently out to mix and master, but again, Marin M A R R O N Chaplin C H A P L I N music.com. You can check her out on Facebook as well, and she'll be coming out with a single called Take Your Medicine.
like I'm more of a rock fan. She, right? She's a rocker. Uh, okay. It's really, really good stuff. Very talented lady. And we'll be putting that out probably at the first of uh, 2021. Take your medicine, Marin Chaplin. And then you can check me out at www.mikelittledrummer.com. Kind of see what I'm into. And uh, um, you, you got several different projects going. Yeah, lots of different music yeah. going on. But uh, we'll be doing that going into 2021. And look out for Marin Chaplin. So that's all I got. Thank you for having me, man. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for coming. And, and thank everybody for listening to Through the Never. Please subscribe and check out other episodes. The show is streaming on all the major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and all of the ones you can think of, really. I've really, uh, I've, I've, sorry, newly repurposed my Twitter account to be um, for the show. So follow the Through the Never podcast on Twitter at TTN Podcast Chris or the show page on Facebook for updates so you can make requests for album reviews something you know stuff you want to hear about and to participate in shaping the future content through polls or or anything else that um, we can interact with so that i can uh make sure that i'm delivering some content that uh, everybody wants to hear i'm looking forward to new content ideas that i've got prepared beyond this series it's been a fun series but i'm looking forward to getting into some new stuff after that so thank you guys. See you soon.